the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello, this is Neil Finn. I'm giving you the story behind the song on the Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome listeners to another episode of the story behind the song, the Consequence Podcast Network series, where we interview the iconic artists behind the most iconic songs of the past few decades. I'm your host, Peter Chadi, and each month I dive deep into conversations with your favorite musicians of all time to get insights into the creative journeys behind their most popular and lasting songs. I also ask each artist about one of their personal favorite deep cuts from their own catalog. In the process, these living legends reveal frequently surprising, never-before-discussed details about these songs and their creative journeys, as well as candid reflections about their personal triumphs and challenges. In this episode, I speak with Neil Finn of Crowded House, a band that released its first album in 1986 and is known for having created some of the most beautiful music of that era and continues to record to this day. In fact, Crowded House just released its latest album, Dreamers Are Waiting, its first in over a decade earlier this year. Neil is clearly a restless soul with an endlessly creative mind. Apart from Crowded House, he has served double duty as a member of Fleetwood Mac since 2018, and he also continues to record as a solo artist. We discuss all of it and how he juggles it all. But first, we discuss the story behind Neil's classic song, Don't Dream It's Over. You know, the Hey Now, Hey Now song that has transcended mere classic status to become one of the few true lasting music anthems of the past 40 years. Neil wrote this song, which is sure to continue to delight and inspire sing-alongs for generations, essentially in less than 24 hours, something we've learned is quite common for artists when they created their most lasting signature songs. We also discussed Neil's pick, his beautiful love song, Fall At Your Feet, from Crowded House's third album, Woodface, which was released in 1991. So take a listen as we dive into the story behind the song with Neil Finn of Crowded House. Neil, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Peter. And Neil, where are you right now? Where are we having this conversation? 
Well, I'm at, on the west coast of New Zealand, uh, just out of Auckland, at a beach called Piha, um, which is where we have a uh, beach house and we get out to because it's so close to downtown Auckland, we can do it on a whim. Um, so yesterday it was a gorgeous day, um, feeling very summery, and I just came out here to try and finish some lyrics, which is uh, a good place to do it. Wonderful. So are those lyrics to Neil Solo, Crowded House, or to which project? Uh, well, at the moment, they're just songs. Um, they will become, some of them at least, Crowded House songs, uh, given we've had a lot more time this year than we thought we would have. It's it's the normal event that you do a record and then you go out and uh, you know play live for the next year or so. Um, and so it kind of creates a natural yeah. um, sequence of events um, and, you know, make a record once every two or three years. At the moment, we had such a long break last year because we couldn't play anywhere. I've started writing a whole bunch of new material. So that will emerge, I think, probably some point next year as a Crowded House album. And I'll have a few left over. Um, and I don't know what will become of them. Well, it's interesting. Before we get into some of the things we were going to talk about, I'll ask you about that. You're writing songs all the time. How do you, how do you decide which song is, is it something that you have in mind as you're writing that this feels like a crowded house song versus a Neil Finn song versus another project song? It's usually uh, not established until we get into rehearsal. If we're doing a crowded house rehearsal, the band will start to play um, all of the ideas that are around and some of them will rise to the surface because the band just takes them somewhere, you know? Um, and in many cases, that's what enables me to finish them. Uh, I, I kind of need to hear them coming back at me in some form in order to get the last few words figured out and, uh, you know, to get, get that last rush to push it over the, push it over the edge. You always try and finish something entirely at the time the first idea comes. But it, it doesn't always work out like that. Yeah, and and it's a good time to ask you just about your process. Do you have one set process when you're writing your songs, where you start with lyrics first, or the music first, or vice versa? Or how how does that work with you? It's not entirely um, the same from day to day, but I do have a I have a setup with a piano and a guitar and a little recording. I used to have a like a four track cassette recorder when they first came out. Um, and I got into the habit of making little demos of, first of all, of very rough ideas, atmospheres in some cases that I would become inspired to write on. It's like you, I want to get a hint of the way the record might sound um, in order to actually write the song. Um, it, it just wills you on. And before I've even got a couple of lines slung together and real lyrics, I've got a whole bunch of nonsense, which I'll harmonize to and elaborate on. And in a way, I like to keep it in that sort of state in order to allow every possible, um, you know, accidental stroke of good fortune to emerge. Because once it's emerged as a finished thing, it's very hard then to to take it apart again. So, yeah, I'm happy to stay in that subconscious zone for a long time. Uh, no, that's fascinating to hear. And uh, it's great to see that you're in New Zealand. Uh, I visited once far too long ago. Uh, I'm actually in San Diego. So near mm. the beach, not too. So we, we only have 18 hours, something like that between us, but in any yeah. event, just the, just the short hop on an airplane. Yeah. I was going to say it's the same ocean, but of Absolutely. course it's not because I'm facing the Tasman sea, which looks out to Sydney basically. So, um, New Zealand, one of the most beautiful places on uh, this earth. Yeah. Well, I would agree with that. And, uh, you know, we're happy to be here 
But we've spent a fair bit of time in California in recent years as well, and I and I have a soft spot for that as well. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad in the Southwest. It's not bad. So today we're going to talk about two songs, as I said. Don't dream of dream, don't mm-hmm. dream. It's over from your debut Crowded House album, and then fall. I asked uh, what the other song would mm. would be that you would like to discuss, and you selected "Fall at Your Feet," which is from Woodface, which is the third mm-hmm. Crowded House album. And so we'll get into that, and then just quickly we'll talk more about this. But you just recently released the latest Crowded House album, "Dreamers Are mm-hmm. Waiting," and I've been listening to that album, and it's very faithful to Crowded House. It's a wonderful sound to it. Um, and that was just released in June, I think of yeah. this past year. And so you're going to be touring in support of that starting in June of next year, it, but not, not in North not America. Until, well, we are planning to see. play in North America. It's, uh, I don't think has been announced yet, but it will be coming soon. Um, and we were originally, you know, we've had two tours booked, virtually booked in North America in the last six yeah. months. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, in, it, it's actually possible we might have been able to do the one in October that was booked. But there's too many variables coming from this part of the world with so much, I mean, bringing all these people over and the chance that something's yeah. going to get cancelled at the last minute is just, uh, you know, from an economic and also just logistical standpoint, too difficult. But we, we were disappointed not to have been able to play this new record live for good folks over there because I think the band, the, the few shows we did in New Zealand in March this year, uh, was so, um, you know, really wet our appetite and the band was sounding so good. So, um, yeah, it'll happen. Oh, yeah. Crowded House fans are excited that this is the first new studio album in over yeah. 10 years. So it's a big deal. And you have two sons who are now in the Correct, band. Correct, yeah. Um, they, of course, grew up with Crowded House, the ethos, the music, the humor. Um, they had no choice. Um and so in a way they carry it deep within their psyche and um you know in the intervening years have become extraordinary musicians in their own right great songwriters and arrangers and um got a lot of miles on the clock now so in a way when it emerged you know when the sort of flash of inspiration in my head pointed to that as a um, a great potential for crowded house as well as um reintroducing mitchell Froome to the actual band of this time, our original producer. It just seemed so entirely obvious. I was kind of, it, and now, and sort of the right time for it. Um, so yeah, that's been a revelation. I think the band feels it's got huge potential for growth with them. Um, you know, and, and we walk into the room, uh, you know, I know it's hard to probably believe, but it's not really a father-son dynamic. Um, it's, a, it's a band member's dynamic. Um, I only get a veto when it's my song. <laughs> are they yeah are they also they write or they have written you know a lot um liam's had um many releases um elroy just released a record this last year um and but they've been writing for a long time and they they have really fantastic um aesthetic you know a few different points of difference but there's a lot of um similarities and a lot of empathy with the way we work together um well, it's a beautiful thing that that you brought family into music throughout your career uh, as a musician, because and and we can get into that. But obviously, family and humor, you 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 can feel that. And like you said, it's part of the ethos. I I could imagine. I've seen you yeah. in concert before, as Crowded House, and both as solo Crowded House, and then solo as well. And 
So I, I very much appreciate that also in your music. But going back, let's get into that a little bit, because coming out of New Zealand as a young, young lad, you and your brother, Tim, always seemed to be joined at the hip when it came to music. So can you get into that a little bit? Let's start. Let's get into your musical journey as a young lad in New Zealand and how that evolved, you know, who your inspirations were when you picked up the guitar and how that led to getting into being part of split ends and then moving into creating Crowded House. Um, Yeah. Well, as you rightly point out, it's been something that's, that I've always, um, been aware of since being a small boy. Tim was five and a half years older than me. And I watched, um, you know, at close quarters, him develop music in his life. Um, first of all, getting piano lessons. Um, and, you know, the the moment of revelation was when he sent a tape back from boarding school. He went there when he was 13 or 14, met up with a guy called Mike Chun, who became part of Split Ends years later, um, and sent a tape of him home of himself singing and I, and it just sounded so good. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, we had sung together as boys and done harmonies. I think the song, uh, Jamaican farewell, Harry Belafonte, I think, um, originally did was our repertoire and we get hauled out in front of our parents, friends to sing harmony songs. And, you know, we'd end up singing harmonies with my mum doing the dishes. That was kind of the normal thing. And we had a guy at their gatherings that have, you know, regular parties. And there was a guy called Colin O'Brien who played the piano. And they used to sort of keep him supplied with beer and fags or cigarettes, as I, I should say, um, in America. And he would play all night long. He didn't live, live a long life, but he was responsible for a lot of joy um, at those events. So I saw we saw how music lit a room up and, um, you know, was intoxicating uh, as well as for the intoxicated. And um, it, it was a pretty heady crew. Exactly. So big part of our lives. I didn't think about it. And um except for whenever Tim would, he'd come home and he knew how to play Lara's theme from Dr. Shivago from his first couple of lessons. And I was only seven at the time, but I picked it out on the piano too, because I wanted to do what he was doing. Um, it's a natural brothers dynamic. And then learned how to play acoustic guitar and a few simple chords. He showed me a few things. I watched him become, get into a band at, at school and, you know, was intrigued by, by watching them, you know, playing Hey Joe, like every other band at the time. Um, the Beatles, Stones, all of the pop music from the 60s, early 70s was permeating. It seemed normal that you would gather around a stereo and listen to the latest Beatles record um, from, you know, top to bottom. Um, <laughs> I can remember when the White Album appeared, and I probably was only about 10 at the time or something, but I was amazed at all my brother, my brother and his friends standing around and listening to every word and every side, you know. Um, that, that provided the fuel for the fire, I think. Yeah. So you picked up the guitar really young, young. at, and piano when, you, when you were seven to 10, that area, that, that. Yeah. So seven or eight was starting to get, um, into it. Um, but you know, trying to match my brother's moves really, um, we were doing things only in an enthusiast level at home. He started a band in university when I was about 14 um, at school and became a bit of a freak, you know, started taking um, psychedelic substances and um, like back people were back in the day and hanging out with art school students and making this kind of amazing music that the first Split Ends songs were. And I was absolutely entranced by it. 
um, and wanted to do it too. And the only place I could go was a local folk club, um, which I was really glad of somewhere to go and play my guitar. And you know, I would play Neil Young songs and they would play um, ancient English folk songs. And uh, so I got exposed to some of that tradition through that experience. And yeah, and then, you know, wasn't expecting to, but eventually um, at a pivotal moment for Split Ends when they were in England, um, five, five years on from the starting, they lost their original songwriter, Phil Judd, and their original bass player, Mike, who'd been at school with Tim at the same time. And I got the call, you know, come over and uh, join us, even though I hadn't I play electric guitar in the band. I'd never played electric guitar in my life. Um, acoustic, yeah, but it's a different it's a different proposition. But they knew I got the they knew I got the ethic. They knew I got the um, the humour. Uh, um, you know, it was an it was a soulful thing, a decision. And for the first six months, I was put on the side of stage with my amp facing away from the band, so nobody would have to listen to me. Uh, that's that's good. Um, you know, it's great songs from Split Ends. And many of you out there are very familiar with them. I got you. History never repeats. Six months in a leaky boat. Great songs. Um, and since you were, you grew up in your fa- with your family and friends, and then you went to pubs singing. So it sounds like because you grew up in your formative years, always publicly doing this, it always felt natural to you to be getting on stage and playing and singing. Yeah, to some extent, um, and I was playing at folk festivals and things like that. You know, three or four songs, get up and do it. Mm. Neil Young songs and Cat Stevens, and you know, the things that were remotely folk. They weren't really traditional. Um, yeah, it didn't feel. I don't think I ever suffered from extreme stage fright. I, I was probably nervous getting up, um, but I, I've seen friends of mine who've done it all their whole lives. You know almost throwing up before they go on stage. They're so nervous. And I, it's had, luckily I haven't been af- afflicted by that. I'll just pace the floor a little bit, do a bit of singing and I'm okay. You know, you, know, you, you mentioned that you grew up listening to, you know, obviously like the stones and Beatles and all that. And, and the songs that you write, obviously they're very much your own, but there is a, the, the quality of them and the melodies are, are Beatles ish. To me, as a longtime listener, they're just beautiful melodies. Uh, and so I would imagine that they were an influence on you as you began to write your own songs. Yeah, I mean, the Beatles were revered in our, in our realm. Um, they were breaking up as I started to become, like when I was 13 or something, 12, 13, that's when they broke up. Um, my brother subscribed me for a Christmas present to the Beatles fan club booklets that got sent out. I think I got the last one um, was the only one I got because <laughs> they broke up. I still remember the cover of it. They're standing in a field all dressed in black from memory. Um, and I bought Let it, Let it Be was the first record I had, um, which is a really interesting turn of events now because I've just watched the uh, entire Get Back um, film. And, and so it has a lot of... I just fin- I finished it last night. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. It is incredible, yeah. Well, it's on many different levels to get that close to something that's sort of mythical in a way um, and was my first, like I said, my first record. So those songs, even the little intro bits in the middle, you know, I did yeah. pick me by Charles Hawtrey and the Deaf Aids, phase one in which Doris gets her <laughs> oats. That was, um, you know, as much of a part of a song as anything. I get to see John 
saying it live on the floor as a you know just an ad lib um all those things are really significant and meaningful and to see them writing together and actually largely yeah. certainly on the film having a really good time i know there was a lot of tension and uh, a few things that, that are unspoken in the even in the eight hours of footage but still what an incredible um opportunity to to get close to be in the room with them you know and just a further confirmation that of the soul of their band and their belief in each other and you know seeing the way they work it's everything you'd hope it it was and really the model for yeah. what bands are and should be you know uh, no absolutely it's 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 fascinating to get a peek behind the curtain yeah. and that's a great segue for we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to take a peek behind the curtain of don't dream it's over how that all came to be and um and we'll be right okay. back okay we're, we're back with neil finn of neil finn crowded house split ends fleetwood mac and i'm going to ask you about all of that and how you juggle it all but we're going to get into the true to the name of the show story behind the song of don't dream it's over from your debut album uh crowded house in 1986. so you were in split ends neil and then you weren't so you founded crowded house mm -hmm. Before we get into the song, how, how did that happen? Um, well, I was incredibly lucky to be in Split Ends. I was the youngest um, by far. And after for six months or so being the guy that was sent down to get the sandwiches, um, I ended up writing a few of the songs that became successful for the band. So grew into a, into a, not the lead of, you know, I wasn't the lead singer of the band. It was always Tim really, but certainly somebody who had to kind of lead the songs forward and deliver them on stage. So it was a great grounding for me. Um, towards the end of yeah. the band's history, we faltered um, both internally and externally. The albums weren't as um, well received. We may have ended up enduring and, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that's very mysterious in human relationships. We were very close. There was a great humor and a good camaraderie too, but things just drifted a little bit. My brother had, um, gone on, he made a solo record, which had done quite well. And I think he he had this feeling that he needed to go and experience the world outside of the realms of being in a band. Um, he'd been in since he was, you know, just left school. Um, so he left the band and then we had to decide whether to carry on. And I, as much as I was attached to the, the ethos and the people and the, the potential of the band, I didn't want to be the guy. I, did, I just had this really weird feeling about being the lead front man of a band that my brother had formed. Um, and I thought I've got to have some, if I'm going to have a clean slate, I want a clean slate. So I, at the time we just found Paul Hester as a replacement drummer in Split Ends and he did the last tour with us. And he and I got on like a house on fire and we were the same age. And we talked about forming a small band out of the, um, the ashes of Split Ends and it got excited about it. And um, we, our, you know, manifesto was we had to fit into one rental car um because there was only there was six of us in split ends that was always <laughs> we kind of were joking but it was almost sort of there was something about a small band a trio or a you know yeah. four piece um that seemed appealing and there was a lot of energy to, to do that i think sometimes when things are breaking up there's a an inverse and opposite um reaction happens and you're just dying to get into something new so we immediately went overseas paul and i we, we actually had done some rehearsals the way we did rehearsals for a bass player was to make some demos and then give the tapes minus bass to a few different bass players. 
um, and let them record the bass tracks on these demos, uh, which was quite a nifty way of doing it, actually, because it saved us a lot of um, awkward on the floor moments. But uh, we ended up finding yeah. Nick Seymour, and it was as much to do with the way that Nick's energy was um, infectious. Uh, he danced around when he came in to play the songs that he'd actually laid down as demos to us. He was dancing around to his own bass, bass lines, and we thought, oh, you know, that's that's good. Um, and the bass line he came up with for one of the songs, one of Paul's songs, had a funky aspect to it that was very felt, felt quite fresh to me. But um, yeah, so we, we had him sort of standing by and then Paul and I went overseas to try and get a deal straight away. We sort of thought it would be nice to have a record deal before we even got going, really. Um, we went to London, we went to LA and we visited, we probably had about uh, probably only half a dozen eight meetings with various A&R people around the place that we could get access to. Um, and, you know, as it happened, we walked into Tom Wally's office at Capitol on, a, I think, almost his first day in the job um, as that point as a junior A&R guy. Um, and he liked the demos that we played him and kept in touch. And that turned out to be a fruitful, um, very fruitful um, meeting. Um, that's that was great. under the moniker the Malanes, right? That was yeah. We hadn't come up with the name Crowded House at that point. We were called the Malanes. Yeah, that was my mother's um, maiden name and my second name, um, middle name. Yeah, uh, we thought that was too easy to subvert and to buy. You know, bitter journalists could make it into the Malays or or the mun <laughs> the mundanes or the Dullanes or you know, like there was just <laughs> you're looking for. It was, it was fraught with. It was fraught with peril. It was fraught with peril. Yeah, that's how confident we were. <laughs> uh, um, or paranoid. So uh, we went back to Melbourne and that developed relationship with Tom and sent him, kept sending him tunes and uh, kept rehearsing. We went on a tour under the name of the Malanes. He actually came down and saw our Melbourne show on that tour. We were pretty ragged and we had a guitar player at that point, Craig Hooper. We had a four-piece lineup going, um, a guitar band, you know, no, no keyboards anywhere. So just before we get into the song, so Crowded House, that just, uh, you were recording in Los Angeles at the time. Yeah, well, right? they, you know, we I had sent demos. We'd been looking for a producer and um, Tom at that point had committed to signing us and um, I'd sent him a recent batch of songs that I'd recorded mostly at home. We'd done a little couple at rehearsal, which included the song Don't Dream It's Over. And I remember he sent it to Mitchell Froome. Uh, who was actually not vastly experienced as a producer, but I had heard some of his tracks and thought there was something about it that had a real sound and um, it sounded exotic to me. Uh, some influences in there I wasn't used to. And we um, and he was attracted immediately to Don't Dream It's Over and um, as a demo and wrote the little organ solo to go with it pretty much the day he got it, I think. So that was the setup for our first meeting when I went back to LA and the deal was struck with capital and we were getting to the business of making, making a record. So don't dream it's over was one of the first songs that you had recorded as part of this new group uh, that was yet to be called crowded. It, was, well, the, it became part of the first albums recording with, along with all the others and some yeah. of which we'd had for a while and some had just emerged. Um, but it was certainly one of the first songs I worked on with Mitchell when I went over to his house and he had a, his setup was with a B3 organ, uh, a synthesizer bass, and he had this, this uh, blaster box that he used to record on too. And I remember he played, 
his arrangement for Don't Dream It's Over and also something so strong, which he'd really changed quite dramatically from the demo I sent to him. Um, and they both featured this. He's got a very good left-hand bass thing going on. And he put like what amounted to a, an R&B bass line on Don't Dream It's Over and also done a, a something which was somewhat R&B influenced on something so strong as well. And I'd never heard that kind of influence um, on any of my songs before coming from a band who really in a way were a British, we had a British um, aesthetic in split ends and never really, actually we probably never thought about whether things were R&B or whether they were pop or whether they were, you know, we were just in the, in the spirit of the Beatles, just dip, dipping our toes in anywhere we felt, you know. Um, yeah. But that was exciting. I remember getting the tapes in Mitchell sent me home with a cassette. Uh, I remember getting a tape of those two and just thinking, wow, this has got something, you know, really different about it. And um, it, it was exciting. Do you remember what inspired you or do you remember that moment where you've, it came to you, the, you know, the melody for this song? Uh, well, it was one of those songs that came largely in one go, which doesn't happen very often and is usually a good sign. Um, I was at my brother's house, Don't Dream It's Over. Um, yeah, just in his writing room. And I remember there was a few people turned up. Paul was living there at the time, actually, Paul Hester. I remember a few people turned up to visit and have cups of tea and whatnot. And I wasn't feeling very sociable. Um, so I disappeared into the music room and um, hopped on Tim's piano and wrote Don't Dream It's Over. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that any of the lyrics were directly related to the, the fact that there was people in the house that I, that I hadn't wanted to socialize with. But in a sense, it was um, a private message from from me to someone who was withdrawing from their world. Um, you know, don't dream it's over. They come to build a wall between us. Don't let them win. Uh, sometimes you imagine a scenario where the character in the song is having an experience and it's somewhat come from the day that you're in and somewhat from just finding a musical space that brings these ideas to life. So, um, but originally written on the piano, which is, and in the key of E, uh, which is interesting because it became a guitar song the next day when I went home and did a demo. The demo was actually available on a, on a, a rarities record that was released not that long ago. It's very much close to how it ended up on with the crowded house version except that the snare drum was a matchbox and i think the uh, bass drum was a was a rubbish tin on my demo mm. uh and it was mm. without mitchell's organs organ solo so um, <clears throat> yeah well so did, did i understand this correctly it sounded like you were in this other room while everybody else was out in the other part of the house yeah and the and lyrics were these darker lyrics were flowing from you at the point so where was the did you already have the the um the musical context for those for those words or was it happening in equal time or how how did that come about well that one was happening i mean as far as i can remember that one was happening in pretty much um you know the same time as the music i i would have had a pad and a piece of paper and uh, and a pen and um i was just playing the same bit of music over the verse came first um what ha often happens with me I do remember coming up with the line, you know, my possessions are causing me suspicion, but there's no proof and thinking, oh, that's, I like that. That's, I don't normally run words together at that pace. And I thought, yeah, that's a good line. And 
it seemed to mean something. I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you about that line, actually, because it's not an obvious line. No, well, I sort of, I think there's certain points in your life where you start to look around and, and you look at the decisions you've made and the things you do, and we accumulate possessions in our lives. And the, um, there's always that dichotomy about whether they actually are, they obviously help in a lot of ways. Uh, they're fun to have these things built up around you and they end up in storerooms half of them because you get too much of them. But um, And then you also have this idea in your head in a pure sense that uh, not accumulating possessions, earthly possessions, and being completely in the moment and um, you know being more aware of the people around you is actually there's a greater truth uh, involved. But, you know, it's causing me suspicion, but there's no proof. So, you know, these are just ideas that... Um, that float around and, and you're not fully resolved about them, but you're also at the same time looking at the state of the world and going, well, I don't know, this, everything's an absolute mess, but what can I do about it? So, you know, you, you know, that we all seek entertainment and escape. Hey, that much is extremely true of today as well. So, you know, nothing, oh, nothing's changed. We're all trying to catch the deluge in a paper cup. Yeah, that's for sure. About being but that, that's another, yeah. Yeah. That's another amazing line, you know, because, as I listen to the lyrics, there's tales of war and waste and all this. So as you were saying, there's all these forces that are flowing against us, trying to build a wall between us, but then they don't win. Don't let them win. So it's, um, yeah, it, it, I'm glad I put that line. In and there. I would imagine <laughs> people have said, yeah. people have speculated that it, don't dream it's over might mean one of two things, you know, don't dream it's over. Um, so if I ever write a song yeah. called it's over, you can, you can probably predict that I'm, that I'm in a really dark place. <laughs> well, so what do you, what does, I don't want to ask you to be literal because I, that's the wrong question, but don't dream it's over. You have all these forces that are coming and attacking you and don't let them win. So don't dream it's over. Like you said, don't, don't dream it's over, but don't dream it's over. What does that mean to you? Well, I, I would much prefer to, to see it as a, I mean, I'm always attracted to double meanings anyway, so I'm happy when people get things wrong. It, um, it, I don't really want to be too literal. Uh, maybe it's the way it just suits me not to be. I like some songwriters that are very literal, but I don't want to have to concentrate on getting a song when I first hear it. I like it to kind of come in through the back door a little bit and kind of catch me by surprise and sometimes get it. I don't even know what it's about. You know, hence the, say, the the way that people use the same song for um, weddings as they use for funerals on many occasions. Um, I was just hearing about the Hallelujah song um, on a podcast recently, and they were saying it gets used at funerals and it gets used at weddings. And, you know, in the, if you listen to the lyrics, you know, why on earth on either would it be really appropriate? But um, yeah, yeah, people, and I like that about songs, you know, like, the, the non-literal interpretation. Um, but for me, Don't Dream It's Over is, is a very much a hopeful, uh, positive um, statement. Um, you know, don't start to believe that uh, there's no hope, I suppose. And um, that's the first step in addressing things in your own personal life that are not right. And it's the first step in the world addressing um, you know, an acknowledgement that there is hope uh, or, you know, an affirmation that there is hope. So I think that's, you know, you don't think about these things at the time. I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, this will, you know, people will use this as a 
an affirmative anthem in years to come. You don't have any of those thoughts in your head, but I've been so delighted that it has been used in a lot of different contexts as an affirmation of um, hope. Um, yeah, I and mean, that's the kind of thing that the mysterious journey that songs make is um, I'm just super grateful for it. Did you immediately know after you wrote that song that that one in particular was special? I don't, I think I was really into it, you know, like I made a, a pretty nice demo of it and I knew that it was, that it had something um, in, in it, but it, not, not overly, I'm not over and above others that I was working on. Whatever you're working on, you sort of, in order to finish them, you have to really love them at some point. You have to really yeah, um, feel something by listening to them. And, uh, and I always have a moment at the end of the day where I'll listen to what I've just worked on, if it's turned out okay like a dozen times at the end of the day, just over and over, quiet, loud. Um, on my old Porter studio, I used to be able to listen to it slowed down and sped up. <laughs> and I just, because you yeah. just really, it's the delight to have made something out of nothing, you know, and uh, it wasn't there this morning and here it is. And then you, and nobody else in the world has heard it. So you kind of get this little private moment with uh, something that you've created. And it's, you know, one of my favorite things about writing. Well, it, it must be, uh, and then we'll take a break, but it must be pretty amazing the journey of being in the back room, recalling that moment where you were away from all the others. It flowed to you. It sounds like within 24 hours, you had pretty much the, you pretty much had it mm -hmm. all. So in that 24 hours, and now here we are, uh, 30, wait, 40, almost 40 years later, 35 years the later. Mind boggles. Yep. It does. And it truly is true. That song truly is one of the few anthems that the world knows and can sing together. It's there aren't many. I can't think of many. And that's truly one of them. The, and many know of it as the Hey Now, Hey Now song. Um, but it's it is a very special song. And and it's one of many in your great catalog. And so we're going to get into a second one, but thanks for taking us through that one. So we're going to take a quick break right now, and then we'll come back with Neil Finn to discuss the sec second song, which is Fall at Your Feet from Woodface. Okay. Hey there, it's Kyle Meredith from Kyle Meredith With. After you check out the latest episode of my show, uh, be sure to check out some of our other great programs on the Consequence Podcast Network, including Standing BTS, a bi-weekly podcast covering all things BTS and ARMY, and The Opus, Consequence's original documentary podcast exploring legendary albums and their lasting legacies. So head to Consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others. Okay, we're back. So, Neil, welcome back to Story Behind the Song. I asked you to choose the second song for today's um, for today's show, and you chose Fall at Your Feet uh, from Woodface, which is the 1991 third album of Crowded House. And in that album, your brother Tim, going back to Family Affair, joined the band yeah. for that album. Yeah. So before we get into the song, how did that all happen? Why that moment in time? Uh, well, it, there was concurrent activity happening around the time of Woodface. We had started to record a new Crowded House album in, um, in LA, and we did like probably ended up with seven or eight tracks that we really liked, but it wasn't a full album yet. Um, so at the same time, or maybe just before that, around the time of the birth of our younger son, Elroy, so this is now 30, we, I can tell you exactly, it was 32 years ago, 
um, just over. Uh, Tim and I decided that it was time he and I wrote in earnest some songs together because, in fact, we hadn't really ever done it, not sitting in a room. Um, and this was, I suppose, the subtext was that we would do a Finn Brothers record at some point. Um, and we wrote this batch of songs very quickly and in a real rush, and it was just a glorious two or three weeks um, in this apartment upstairs next, next door to where we were living. Um, and Paul came in and played some drums on some demos, and they just had a lot of joy and a lot of, and there was a lot of song, really strong songs in there. Uh, so there was this body of songs sitting there, and then there, there was this un, half finished Crowded House album, and and I'm juggling these two worlds, going well, you know, inevitably it would be great if every song was just in the mix, you know, we could do that. And um, at the time we weren't um, nuanced enough in dealing with situations like that. To think, oh, we should just do those songs, and Tim can be a, you know, now they would say feat, um, Tim Finn, you know, Crowded House featuring Tim Finn, and it wouldn't be, you wouldn't have to make a big deal of it. And in those days, we were going, yeah. oh, we can't use those, so they're ring fenced for the Finn Brothers ring. And so I think it was Tim one afternoon in our kitchen said, well, why don't I, just, why don't I just join the band? And I went, oh yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good idea. And so I went to the others, Tim and Nick, and said, oh, we can. Get, there's all these songs that but they'd already started to play on a couple of them. We could just, these could be part of the Crowded House album and we just get Tim to join. How about it? And they went, yeah. <laughs> okay. They were much more confused by the idea than I was. It just seemed like a solution to me. Um, they, they loved the songs as well. And we all were really good friends. In fact, Paul was living in Tim's house, but um, at the time, but it was, you know, they probably yeah. saw the, looked forward a little bit and went, well, that's, that's a big move, you know, to suddenly have another strong lead singer presence in the, in the band. So, um, yeah, uh, but in, certainly in the short term, the songs, we did them really well and they, they became a very important part of that record. Um, and the recording was enjoyable. We went back to LA and sort of reconnected with Mitchell and he helped us finish them off. Uh, yeah, it was great news for the album. Yeah. And then subsequently, and then we'll get into the song. Uh, you had a Finn Brothers, an official Finn Brothers album. Hmm. And one of my favorite songs of yours, Won't Give In, mm -hmm. from that album. So just for everybody who's out there, that's a wonderful song from the Finn Brothers album. Uh, but going back to the song, Fall At Your Feet. So how did you decide to choose that? What makes that song special to you? Uh, I'm not sure. Just going to popped into my head when you asked <laughs> what song, other song we oh, okay. talk about. It has got an interesting story to it, um, and it's also a song that's endured for me as one I really enjoy playing every time I ever do it. It's just, um, yeah, it has. Uh, I guess, and it's used like one of those songs. Also, like "Don't Dream It's Over," that's used um, it, for occasion. It's become an occasional song. Like it was used at a wedding. I played, in fact, at, at a couple's wedding um, where that they wanted me to play that song. Uh, and it seemed like I've done it twice at weddings, actually. And they, in a way, it's not entirely um, wedding appropriate. Um, but I know <laughs> when you look at the lyrics, yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, there's something about the, um, uh, you know, the declaration of in the middle section, I think, particularly um, that is that, that is very positive and. Um, I, a couple of people have said to me this, that was a really important song for us when we were getting to know each other because we both come out of difficult relationships. And uh, I think it's so often a second or third time around sort of song, you know, where you've, you've taken someone's um, sorrow and 
made them made them um it been a redemption the love has been a redemption for them i think that's what the song's a little bit about is the redemption of coming in after a deep emotional turmoil um a declaration of uh commitment and love after that is what makes that song resonate for people yeah i mean i'll, I'll be waiting when you call uh it's a so it it at least the way i understand it it's it feels like you wanting to i'm not saying you but whoever it is who's mm -hmm. declaring this singing this song is asking to be accepted by the other person so i understand what you're saying now that it's almost like on the second time or third time around it's like okay let's let's make this work yeah well there's definitely some pain and and, and uh, there's sort of but there's a redemptive quality and um you know who knows where that might lead? I, do you want my presence or need my help who knows where that might lead that's a kind of a a, a hopeful um, wish for the future. Um, that's why people communicate to people, I think. I think the chorus always, I always had the chorus first, and this was a song that didn't come all in one go. I had, I've had three different verses at least to that chorus, and I knew the chorus was strong, and the demo that I made of it always had a really uplifting feeling about it, but um, the verse was just not right. Mitchell was, it, Mitchell's very good at listening to a first demo and cutting to the chase. He's not always right, but he, he'll say, why well, that chorus is great. That verse doesn't seem to fit with it, you know? And so it's just someone putting it in front of you and you go, and, and he'll go, well, what about if you did this, this, and you go, no, no, I don't do that. And then you start thinking about it and you go, okay, well, something's wrong with it. Mitchell's not getting it. So, you know, it, it's a good relationship in that regard. Um, so we tried three or four different uh, verses for it. I've got video footage of us listening to one in LA. We did it. Um, a&M Studios. And it sounds pretty good, but it wasn't quite right either. It was too up. It was too upbeat for the chorus. The chorus needed to sit back in a slightly more reflective zone. Um, and eventually, in Melbourne, we were recording back in Melbourne um, after that, and I was just playing this bit of music I'd had since I was about eighteen years old. I wrote when I was about eighteen or nineteen, and Mitchell seized upon it. We weren't playing fully feet at the time. We went. That that would work with full of your feet, and so we immediately fashioned a sort of verse-chorus interaction, and it did feel really good. We laid it down immediately with me on acoustic and with Paul just on drums, just to get a really simple version of it. Um, and by the end of the day, we had the song in virtual finished state. But um, yeah, when we got the final run, it was a very energetic run to the finish. Uh, it's another beautiful song. There's so many from the catalog. And when I think about it, because I do know your catalog really well, and when you, the the, the melodies are just throughout are, are, one of your signatures is that they're just beautiful melodies. And there's also frequently a, a melancholic is not the right word. It's not the right word, but there's definitely a depth of emotion to many of the songs and those are two great examples the anthem of don't dream it's over and then this very personal very personal song fall at your feet so it always fascinating to hear the journeys behind the songs uh and in the in the time that we have left i want to get into some of the other projects that you're you're working okay. on um so first of all you just released as i said before your first new studio album for crowded house in over a decade mm -hmm. And that and and that just came out in June of this past year. Dreamers are waiting, and you're going to be touring with that. But what 
after 10 years, is this something that you knew was going to be happening or how did this all come together where you decided now is the right time to release another Crowded House album? Um, to some extent, my um, musical trajectory is a stumbling along process, really. Um, I don't imagine, I don't think we've ever had a master plan um, as a strategy. Um, we've had a, we've had like six or seven, if not more, managers over the years. Um, I don't wow. know if that means that we're really hard to manage or we just picked the wrong guy. <laughs> I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to comment. You that. have many interests, Neil. It's it's a beautiful thing. You have many interests. <laughs> yeah, but we don't have. So you see, I'm just yeah, just maybe that makes me a restless soul. But it could have made me into a restless soul as well. Um, I yeah, like I said, we haven't really had a master plan over the years. I'm musically very curious, and so I try and um, keep finding new ways to put fresh things in front of me. Um, it, so. It, I wasn't content just to be Crowded House for the whole time, even though, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there who would say once you've got a brand, you just stick to it because um, the public don't follow you very uh, willingly. Uh, and I think they probably, that's too safe. No, but it is. But it's probably true from a commercial point of view. But no, I, I'm, yes. I'm always trying to put some kind of um, truth into what it's called. So if it's a solo record, then it's a solo record. Um, if it's a brother's record, it's a brother's record. If it's Crowded House, um, as it is now, um, then I'm attached to the whole idea of what a band can bring. And um, the fact that the songs won't turn out exactly as I imagined they would is is a wonderful thing. I think it lets the light into the music sometimes. It makes it feel um, more interesting and more um, dimensional, three-dimensional. And um, So anyway, and I, and I had the remarkably unexpected experience of joining Fleetwood Mac you know, um, short, around my 60th birthday, it's the last thing in the world that you would speculate forward and think, oh, yeah, I reckon I'll be asked to join one of the biggest bands in the world when I'm about 60. Um, yeah. Happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday. <laughs> um, actually, I share a birthday with Stevie. Um, well, virtually ah, anyway. Amazing. But we're a day apart, but given the time zones, it must have been around the same time. Uh, <laughs> and... Yeah, so that having happened, but it, that gave me, um, that was an extraordinary experience. It gave me a fresh appreciation for what classic bands are and, uh, you know, singing those amazing songs every night with um, with them and seeing that there's vitality and uh, rejuvenation in their ranks that came from a momentous decision. And some would argue, you know, like, oh, this won't be the same. It's, it can't be. And obviously it can't be the same as, what the last lineup was, but Fleetwood Mac of all bands have made a whole lifetime career out of refusing to be defined as one thing or another, you know, a blues band in its original form as a, you know, a, a roots band went psychedelic for a while, became a pop band, you know, um, and there we were standing on stage and the, the band was just absolutely rocking it. Um, you know, John McVie's dancing across the front of stage um, with the joy of it all. And I'm part of that, and uh, it just gave me a real interest and enthusiasm again for the idea of a classic band and what all of these individuals and characters um, were bringing to this night after night in this new state. You know, it was a fresh vehicle, but people were singing every word, and there was just this joyous feeling in the air. So I thought, well, how could I re-envisage or reimagine Crowded House that it would seem to be an exciting prospect again? Um, and it seemed entirely obvious, as I said before, that when I thought about my sons who'd become some of my favorite musicians on the planet and also Mitchell Froome, who we'd actually asked to join the band 
way back in the early days, but had been very instrumental in many things, as I've described with the songs, um, about the way that we've worked. Um, I wanted to attach myself to that, and I had a feeling it would be a really exciting um, thing to have that potential um, for continuing and making new music. Um, that's the way of yeah. mindset we had for going into this new record, Dreamers Are Waiting, and we were literally rehearsing for that the day after my last Fleetwood Mac show. Oh, how about that? So you are restless, going from one to the next. Well, it wasn't and planned like that, but they, they put in some extra shows, so we had, ah. the, we had the studio booked. But I, actually, it was really good because I didn't have time to have that post-tour slump. You know, you can often wander around the house going, what the hell do I do now, you know? It doesn't sound like you have many days like that where you're wandering around, what am I going to do now? You're One of your projects, where do, where do you take Fleetwood Mac from here? Where does Fleetwood Mac go from here? Because when I look at the website, your your name is still right there. You're a band member of Fleetwood Mac. So where 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 is everything going? Yeah, it's it's quite a, it seems like when I think about it now, I kind of, I go, does, did that happen? You know, like it is so much sort of an unreal quality to it. Um, because yeah, yeah. in part, because we've been, this whole world has gone so strange in the last 18 months. Um, the idea that we got through all those shows in one piece, albeit a few of them delayed through illness, but it seems remarkable now. Look, I, I think that we left it with, with a great, everyone had a great desire to see something else come um, from it, whether it be a few, I don't think another big world tour would ever happen, but um you know, a few of the band would probably love to do some recording. I would be one of them, but that is a harder, that's a harder mountain to move. But um, everything's on hold, everything's up in the air, and I don't know if anyone could answer that question at the moment, um, given the state of the world. So, uh, but, you know, I mean, I'd yeah. be delighted. If it was a wonderful experience, and I, and I really valued um, the friendships and the music. Understood. And it sounds like, um, so, well, you have your tour coming up with Crowded House. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're content, you're writing, you're writing songs. You're yeah. always writing songs. And so there will be, I would imagine another solo album upcoming at some point too. So are, are there any other projects that we should know about that are of particular interest to you? Um, I have, well, I don't, <laughs> I don't know exactly because I'm, <laughs> I'm still finishing. I'm at the beach trying to finish lyrics. Um, once I've got a whole body of new songs and there could be, you know, there could be anything from uh, a dozen to 20 new songs, I'll have a bit of a feel for yeah. which ones might work as new Crowded House material. And there might be others. I always have this feeling when I'm writing that, oh, God, I'd love to hear a woman's voice on this song or, um, you know, a choir on this one or, a, um, you know, I, I have, that may happen at some point. It, it may not has, because I might actually find ways to try and sound like a woman um and do it myself but um, hey something new, new and different yeah uh yeah so i can't really answer that beyond um you know just writing and and i'm i'm really excited about making another record um in the course of the next few months if, especially if we can get together we are um potentially yeah. going to get together in march april if if the borders get opened one of the questions and i'll, I'll close it with this um because i could ask so many more but i like to ask artists such as yourself if if it hadn't worked out in a way where you would be able to make music your career or your profession or whatever you want to call it your calling what what do you think that neil finn would be doing in your life for as a profession i didn't get a chance 
before I joined Split Ends to really establish any other um, talents or skills, I was a hospital orderly, I was a shop assistant, and I was a storm and packer. Yeah. None of them really seemed like a future at the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> although I was glad to be a hospital orderly because it actually cured me of any um, anxiety about hospitals. I was, you know, I, I'm okay going to hospitals now. A lot of people have freak out when they step into a hospital. Um, I, I haven't really ever done it. I've got no direct experience, but I always fancied being a gardener. Actually, funnily enough, we're, I'm at the beach and there's people, gardeners working outside, so I'm actually reminded of my, my potential occupation. They look like they're having, it's a really good way to spend a day and um, to see things grow. Relaxing. You know, to put your hand in the soil, see things grow. Um, to feel a connection to the greater to the greater truth, um, music is a little like gardening, I think. And it, um, it is very much it is. So that would be, you know, I still time. There's still time for me. Um, we have a garden here that I could dig my hands into. So yeah, ask me that in a couple of years. I think you're still going to be writing songs and recording and releasing albums under one of your many monikers. I could do both. Yeah, you could absolutely do both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But thank you so much for joining story behind the song. It's really been a pleasure to hear about the journeys behind don't dream. It's over fall at your feet and all the other things that you're doing. Look forward to hearing, or hopefully that you're going to be coming to Southern California too, to be touring. Yeah. Um, so I can see you myself. And, but we look forward to having you here in North America. Hopefully the world continues to stay ahead or try to stay ahead of all the stuff hope. that's going on out there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's well, a crazy time. It's been nice talking to you too, Peter. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. That was Neil Finn of Crowded House and Fleetwood Mac sharing his in-depth story behind his classic anthem, Don't Dream It's Over, you know, the Hey Now Now song, and his beautiful love song, Fall at Your Feet. I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotti and at deepcutsmedia.com, which is my company. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And be sure to tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes of this podcast. Also, make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song.